and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Last episode, we talked about the rise of Islam and the subsequent rise of the Umayyad Caliphate, right? This religious state that spread from Arabia across the southern and eastern Mediterranean. Now, this episode, I want to return to Western Europe, but I don't want to just leave us hanging on the Umayyads. The problem with the Umayyads is it is very hard to tell their story fairly because from around where we left off, we really don't have many Umayyad sources, and those we do have are mostly a few scraps of personal diaries and poetry, right, things of that nature, but not historical documents. And the history that has been written of the Umayyad Caliphate was mostly written by the Abbasid Caliphate, another caliphate that would come along later and overthrow the Umayyad Caliphate. It is pretty easy to understand why this makes it hard to really understand this era of Umayyad history, and that's because everything that's written about it is designed to make them look bad, because it was written by the rebels who defeated them in an uprising, and of course that uprising was noble and just, and the Umayyads were just terrible, terrible people, and you can understand how it makes it very hard for even a thorough and well-meaning historian with university resources and all that, even then to get an accurate picture, right? It's as if you're trying to tell the story of the American Revolution, but the British Empire collapsed after that, and our only sources are these American revolutionaries telling you about King George and what a terrible scumbag he was, and how dare he put these colonists under his boot. It's kind of like that. So we will return to the Muslim world in the next episode, but we're going to kind of start with the Abbasid Revolution. Uh, this is one area where I'm just not confident enough in my expertise to make a judgment on what we should or shouldn't believe from the Umayyad era. So we'll just kind of skip ahead a little bit there and... You can do your own research if that's something you're really fascinated with. But suffice it to say that despite these internal struggles, the Umayyad Caliphate did successfully expand their territory quite a bit. And in the east, that expansion would reach its highest point. In the year 718, the Caliph Suleiman assaults Constantinople with an army of 80,000 men. And in addition to this army of 80,000 men, he has 1,800 ships and their crews, and his plan is to sort of sail these ships across the harbor, uh, establish a beachhead, and then invade Constantinople from the land side, right, from the other side of uh, the straits there. And uh, the Byzantine fleet puts an end to this pretty quickly. They use a tool called Greek fire, uh, which you may or may not be familiar with. Greek fire was the early medieval version of napalm. Uh, its exact formulation is still not known today, right? People have theories as to what exactly it was, but 
the Byzantines did such a good job of keeping the formulation secret that we can't even be sure today exactly what was in it. What we can say is that it was a liquid and that it ignited spontaneously on contact with water. So you would have these uh, Byzantine ships with, uh, imagine them as, as uh, almost like fire hoses, uh, where they would turn these manual pumps and spray Greek fire at enemy ships. And then the ships would start on fire, and uh, the crews would try to put the fire out with water, which would only make it worse. This was a pretty good way to destroy an enemy fleet. And uh, the Byzantines did that. Uh, and they also worked a little bit of diplomacy. The Byzantine Emperor Leo convinced his Bulgar allies, as you may suspect, those are the people from roughly what we would now call Bulgaria. Uh, he convinces them to attack the Umayyads overland. So with his fleet sunk and his army under attack by the Bulgars, Suleiman beats a retreat. And that pretty much, for now, marks the high water mark of Muslim reach in the eastern Mediterranean. It certainly is the high water mark of Umayyad conquest in the eastern Mediterranean. And 14 years later, in the year 732, the Umayyads would reach a similar high water mark in Spain when they tried to cross over into France and ran into the Franks. Now, if you've been listening to this show for at least the past couple episodes, uh, you'll remember the Frankish king Clovis, the first king of the Franks, who died in 511. Well, in the course of the last episode, talking about everything going on in Arabia and the Middle East, what in the world has happened in France in the last 200 years? Well, we'll be picking up in the year 714, but here's a little bit of background on what happened, right? Remember, when Clovis died, he left his Frankish kingdom to his sons. And his sons divided that kingdom into several duchies, or dukedoms, right? Uh, these duchies were nominally part of the same kingdom, but they were basically semi-independent, certainly independently led, and from time to time they even went to war against each other. Now, if there was a threat to all of them from the outside, they would band together, Right? Think of the early Greek city-states, right? The Athenians and the Thebans and the Spartans uh, were always tangling with each other, but when the Persians showed up, they all linked arms and fought Xerxes back into the sea. Now, to make things even more confusing in this French world of the Merovingian dynasty, each duchy is ruled by a king, right? So you have these dukedoms, but they're not ruled by dukes, they're ruled by kings. Um, and each of those kings is served by a uh, public servant called a mayor of the palace, sometimes referred to as a major domo. Uh, in modern terms, at least in theory, the way the role is supposed to work, this would basically be equivalent to the president's chief of staff, right? The chief of staff... Uh, 
sets all the meetings, manages the president's schedule, and uh, if there's a problem that can be dealt with that really doesn't need the attention of the president himself, uh, the chief of staff uh, will oftentimes take care of it. Uh, that is the role of the major domo or the mayor of the palace. Uh, interestingly enough, this is in fact the origin of our modern word for uh, mayor. And over the course of these couple centuries, right, between Clovis and where we're picking up in 714, many of these major domos have become powerful in their own right. Not surprising, right? You have these kings, you're running their affairs. If the king is not particularly involved, it's easy to understand how a powerful major domo could be the power behind the throne. And this is particularly true in the Duchy of Austrasia. If you've never heard of Austrasia, I'm not surprised. Most people haven't because it's not around anymore, and it hasn't been around for like almost 1,300 years. But Austrasia was roughly the northern quarter of France, right? And I'm being very general here, but that's roughly the part of the map we're talking about. Um, and in Austrasia, the position of major domo, mayor of the palace, has become hereditary. It's passed down from father to son. And in the year 687, the Austrasian major domo, Pepin of Herstal, also takes the title Duke of the Franks. Right? He's not king, but he's the major domo and he's the Duke of the Duchy. Uh, that's a power play, and that sort of marks the point at which the Austrasian kings, at any rate, become irrelevant. You're probably thinking to yourself, Dan, why do we care about this weird country that isn't even there anymore called Austrasia? Well, it is from Austrasia that we get the next line of Frankish kings, and these people are incredibly historically significant, as I'm about to show you. Not only are they integral to the story of France as a nation, right, and nationalism is what we're talking about, but they are also the people who oversee the period where the word European starts to refer to people. In other words, they're around as this Mediterranean divide between Christianity and Islam becomes more and more pronounced. Now, in December of 714, Pepin of Herstal, this Austrasian majordomo slash duke, dies. Now, under ordinary circumstances, this would not be a massive political earthquake, right? His position would simply pass to his son. After all, it has become a hereditary post, but Pepin was a man of his times. You see this a lot in this era. He is a Christian who also had a concubine. Right? He had a wife, a woman named Plectrude, and he had a concubine named Elpeda. 
Alpeda was not an official concubine, right? You don't see her on any legal documents, uh, like you will, for instance, with Ottoman sultans, where the concubines sort of have a an official status. Alpeda was more of a mistress, right? We're getting away from the era where Christian kings like Clovis could get away from having these open, official polygamous relationships. So instead, Pepin keeps a mistress, right? These are not Mormon missionaries. These are... Early Franks. Now, Pepin's mistress, Alpeda, had had uh, two sons, uh, one named Charles and the other named Childebrand. Charles was the oldest, and he was Pepin's de facto heir. Not his legal heir, but everyone expected that the position would go to Charles because he was Pepin's oldest son, even if he was technically illegitimate. However, shortly before his death, uh, Plectrude convinces Pepin to make their eight-year-old grandson, Theodoald, the heir, right? Their son, uh, Theodoald's father, is already dead, uh, which could have made it very easy for Charles, the illegitimate oldest son, to step into the role. But Plectrude wants her grandson, Theodoald, to get what's coming to him, and uh, he does. Pepin, before his death, has indeed declared Theodoald his heir. And we should point out that Plectrude was unusually politically active uh, for a woman in this time and place. Uh, just as one example, uh, if you look at Pepin's legal papers, both his proclamations and, and other documents, uh, you will see her signature alongside his. That's virtually unheard of in this era. Right? We do not see women with that kind of authority, at least not in Europe, again, until you know, Queen Elizabeth. Right? It's going to be a few hundred years. Uh, but Plectrude is very influential, and she's very smart. See, Theodoald, being eight years old, is not really able to take power for himself. So upon Pepin's death, Plectrude immediately moves uh, to take over as regent in Theodoald's place. And she also has Charles, right, this uh, illegitimate son of uh, Pepin and his mistress Alpeda, she has Charles thrown in prison just to make sure he doesn't cause any trouble. Now, at this time, right, in 714 when Pepin dies, Austrasia rules over a neighboring Frankish duchy. Right, it rules over the West Frankish Duchy of Neustria. Again, when I say the western quarter of France, I'm speaking very broadly, but it's that general region. And uh, this Austrasian rule over Neustria lasts for exactly one year. Uh, as long as the Austrasian king is alive, right? This king, who's basically a symbolic ruler, because first Pepin was his major domo, and now Theodoald is the major domo, and Plectrude is his regent, uh, Dagobert was still technically the king, and Neustria was still technically uh, in allegiance to him. As soon as he dies, Neustria stages a rebellion, and the Austrasian army marches out to meet them in September of the year 715. 
during this time, not only does the Austrasian army lose in the field and have to flee, but Charles, this illegitimate oldest son of Pepin, escapes from his prison. And while Theodewald, well, his generals really, again, at this point he's nine years old, he's just kind of there, but while his army is still in the field, uh, recouping their losses and regathering, the nobles of Austrasia have acclaimed Charles as their mayor. Well, this, of course, means that we are now looking at a civil war. So in late 715 to early 716, Theodewald and Plectrude gather all their forces in Cologne. And again, I say Theodewald and Plectrude, but Come on, the kid's ten years old. Plectrude's in charge. She gathers the forces in the city of Cologne in northern France. Uh, this is far to the north of even most of Austrasia. And more importantly, the Austrasian treasury is located there. Which means that basically anybody who wants to take over Austrasia will have to come at them in Cologne. And the Neustrians, these people from western France, they take the bait first. Uh, Theodewald is helpless, mostly uh, it appears because his army was not very good quality. And Charles, interestingly enough, takes the opportunity to lead. Right, He and Theodewald might be in the middle of a dispute over who is Major Domo, but they are both Austrasians. And this is the Austrasian treasury in an Austrasian city, and this is a Neustrian force attacking them. And Charles is going to defend them. So he hastily gathers an impromptu force, marches his men to the rescue, and they are quickly defeated because he hasn't had time to properly train any of them, much the same problem that Theodewald is having, except Theodewald has the benefit of walls right now. Charles does not. He has to flee the field. But this actually ends up working to his advantage because once he's gone, Theodewald and Plectrude have to surrender to the Neustrians. Whereas Charles can still operate in the field freely. Uh, the Neustrians force uh, Plectrude to acknowledge a new king a man named Chilperic II, who, not uncoincidentally, had led the Neustrian army in the battle. And this man, Chilperic, was actually a legitimate heir to the throne. He had been hidden away in a monastery for the first 43 years of his life under the name of Daniel. As a matter of fact, even he, until, <laughs> until he was 43 years old did not know that he was a legitimate heir to the Austrasian throne. Sounds almost like something made up, like you'd read in Game of Thrones or something, but there you have it, Chilperic II, this new Austrasian king, as acclaimed by uh, Plectrude at least, uh, yeah, he had lived his first 43 years hiding in a monastery. And originally, he was mostly a puppet of the Neustrian majordomo, a man named Ragenfried. This is, again, par for the course in this era in the Frankish kingdom. Uh, but as it turns out, uh, Chilperic, being a literate man who had spent a lot of time in the uh, 
monastery uh, learning, apparently, he actually proved to be quite an able battlefield commander and uh, was uh, exercising some power in his own right. Now, at this point, Chilperic, who is right, already the king of Neustria at this point, is also the king of uh, Austrasia. So once again, you basically have a king of the Franks again for the first time since Clovis. But there's a little problem, and that's that Charles is still in the field with his army, right? Again, this senior heir to the Austrasian uh, mayorship, he's still out there. And he retreats all the way to the Eiffel Hills. Uh, these are far to the east in what we would today call Western Germany. But this gives him a base where he can rally supporters. Uh, he has still has the support of many of the Austrasian nobility, and they all send men to join him, and he trains these men uh, over the course of the next few months into a proper army. And he waits until Chilperic is leading his army back to Neustria, right? They've been victorious in Austrasia, Chilperic has been acclaimed king, and now he's on his way back uh, when Charles and his army attacks. And they utilize a strategy that Charles would employ several times throughout his career, and this is the feigned retreat. Right before the battle, he splits his forces in two, and he sends a small raiding force to attack the enemy camp and they make it look like a raid. Right? They attack, they burn a few things, and then they feign a retreat, just as a raiding force would do, right? They're not there to fight, there aren't enough of them, so they run away. This draws Chilperic's army out of their defensive encampment, and out into the open field, and out in relatively poor order, right? Again, his commanders aren't taking time to form their troops up and deploy them properly. They're not forming up for a battle. They're chasing away some raiders. So this army charges out into the open field, chasing this contingent of Charles's army. And once they're far enough out of their defenses, uh, Charles's reserves smash into them from both sides in an ambush. And these troops who had feigned the retreat stop, turn around, and come back in uh, to attack again. Now, the exact details of this battle are sketchy. As we've said, that's pretty common in this era. But it does seem like the Neustrians lost a lot of men, uh, several thousand. And that's not unusual either in this sort of envelopment, right? Sometimes in ancient battles you see very low casualties, right? We saw the... Uh, Muslims and the Meccans facing off in the last episode, and they had this massive battle, and only a few dozen people died, because most of it was posturing and individual duels. Well, when you have an envelopment like this, that's where a lot of people die really fast. Regardless, the uh, Neustrian army was defeated in the field, and Charles, at only 28 years old, uh, had won his first victory. Perhaps more remarkably, for the remaining 25 years of Charles's life, he would never lose a battle. 
Now, with Chilperic's army defeated, Charles now has control of Austrasia, right? Chilperic still in power down in Neustria with his major domo Ragenfrid, but he's been pushed out of Austrasia. So Charles takes the opportunity to consolidate his position. He raises even more troops, and he spends the next several months once again drilling these new troops, getting them up to what he considers his standard. And while all of this is going on, uh, there's another people living to the this sort of the northeast of Austrasia, and these people are the Saxons. They see all of this unrest going on in Austrasia, and these Saxons, these Germanic barbarians, start raiding Austrasia from the east. Now, these aren't uh, anything that's going to conquer Austrasia. These are barbarian people. They don't really capture settlements and live there. But they do like to take your stuff every now and then, and uh, that is becoming problematic. And normally in history, when you think of someone facing... uh, a war on two fronts, for lack of a better term. That's not exactly the case here, but Charles faces Neustria to the west and the Saxons to the east. Uh, Normally, when you see a war on two fronts, that's a really bad thing for the surrounded party. But in this case, the dual threats of the Saxons and Neustria help Charles to unite the Austrasian nobles, right? So instead of this civil war dragging on, Theodewald is basically walled up in Cologne with Plectrude with no support while Charles is doing all the actual leading in the field. And in 717, uh, he invades Neustria, right? Charles has to make a choice. Does he deal with the Saxons first or the Neustrians first? Well, he decides he must secure his position within France before he can then turn around and deal with these Saxons who are just basically raiding and being a nuisance more than a major threat. Uh, Charles once again meets Chilperic and Regenfrid's army in the field and once again defeats them. This time he drives them all the way back to Paris. And with this level of success, he is in position to install his own king in Austrasia a man named Clothar IV. Uh, While he's doing this, while uh, everyone else is sort of reeling, Charles turns his army back to Cologne and takes the city with little opposition. Remember, Theodewald and Plectrude really don't have much support at this point, uh, so it's not much of a fight. And he does not sack the city. Right? Remember, he's the mayor. He's here to restore order. So he sends Plectrude to a convent, and he actually allows Theodewald to keep living under his protection. That's very unusual in these times. Uh, Normally, if you were a leader and someone else had imprisoned you and tried to take over from you, well, that person was going to lose their head, right? Even if the winning leader is their uncle, as Charles is Theodewald's uncle. But Charles is merciful. Now, Chilperic, right, this king of Neustria who claims the kingship of Austrasia, he's not sitting idle, right? He makes an alliance with Odo. Now, Odo is the Duke of Aquitaine. This particular 
person is indeed called a duke. Uh, and Odo, uh, the Duke of Aquitaine, which is in southern France, invades Austrasia in 718 alongside Chilperic. Now, this delay of a year gives Charles time once again to prepare. Uh, he has further trained his army. And again, while the details are sketchy, once again he wins. He beats this joint army under Chilperic and Odo, and Chilperic ends up fleeting to the city of Angers, which is within Odo's dukedom of Aquitaine. Now, by happy coincidence, at this time, Clothar IV, right, that guy who uh, Charles had just put in charge of Austrasia, well, he dies. And this allows Charles to make a deal. He recognizes Chilperic as king of all the Franks, including Austrasia, and Chilperic, by reciprocity, makes Charles his mayor of the palace, his major domo through all of France. Uh, Ragenfrid, the major domo of Neustria, is on the outs, but he's allowed to live, again, an unusual measure of mercy in these times, and he's even allowed to keep his estates in Neustria, right? He's a powerful nobleman. Uh, instead of being killed or thrown into a monastery, uh, Charles and Chilperic basically just tell him to go home and live his life. And to keep Odo, this Duke of Aquitaine, happy, they recognize his independence, right? So this Frankish kingdom no longer really includes Aquitaine, the southern quarter. That's an independent dukedom. And just as a reminder of where we are in the story, while all this negotiating is going on, while Charles is becoming recognized as mayor of the palace for all of France, the Umayyads are being turned back in their defeat at Constantinople. But over here in Western Europe, the Franks are blissfully unaware of everything going on all the way over in the eastern Mediterranean. But Charles does have business to take care of. He needs to strike back at those Saxons. Remember, those Germanic barbarians raiding his territory from the northeast while he's dealing with a civil war and uh, everything else. Well, now it's time for him to take revenge. Uh, he does this by raiding several Saxon settlements and burning them to the ground. Uh, he also defeats a Saxon army in battle when they meet him and try to stop him. Uh, but he doesn't conquer Saxony. Again, uh, much like the Saxons can't really conquer Austrasia, it looks like uh, the Franks at this time can't really conquer Saxony. It's a warrior people, uh, a very tough people, a very tough environment that they live in, and it is much better for everybody just to subdue them and make the raiding stop, which is what Charles does. In 719, a year later, the king of Frisia, which is the modern Dutch coast, he dies, and Charles moves in quickly to seize his kingdom with very little opposition, and of course he does this in Chilperic's name, in the name of his Frankish king. Uh, but that relationship doesn't last for long, because... In 720, Port Chilperic, who spent most of his life in a monastery and only ruled for a few years, well, 
he dies of natural causes, and it does seem that these are really natural causes. I haven't seen any evidence of foul play here, but it does put Charles in a good position where he can appoint the next king, and he appoints uh, Theodoric, uh, a young man who is the son of Dagobert, uh, who was the king who died setting all this off, right? Well, now his son, Theodoric, is the king of the Franks, but he's basically a puppet, right? Unlike Chilperic, who is very much his own man, uh, Theodoric is content to enjoy his luxury as king and let Charles run the kingdom. For a few years, everything is relatively stable, and in 724, Raginfrid, right, that major domo of the Neustrians, well, he revolts with a few local nobles, and Charles puts him down pretty easily. Uh, once again, he's merciful. He allows Raginfrid to go home again, but this time he takes his sons hostage for good behavior. And once again, Charles goes about consolidating his rule. Uh, he does do a little bit of conquering over the next few years. Uh, he defeats the Alamanni, a neighboring Germanic tribe, and incorporates them into his realm. This expands the Frankish kingdom into the southwestern part of modern-day Germany. And in the year 730, Charles also launches yet another punitive expedition against those Saxons, uh, just to keep them subdued. And at this point, Charles is running out of room for expansion. Right? He can either incorporate the Saxons into his realm, which could be really complicated, or... He could finish gathering the rest of the Franks into his realm, which meant uh, invading Aquitaine. Now, it seems as if Charles has been waiting for some time for an excuse to do this. And when he does, it's on the basis that Odo, the Duke of Aquitaine, had made some diplomatic agreements with Muslim rulers. Now, in actuality, this type of thing had been going on for quite some time in the area, right? The Muslims, the Umayyads, had expanded all the way up through Spain, and it was perfectly natural that the people of Aquitaine, right on the border, uh, would have some sort of relationship with them. But the specific diplomatic agreement that supposedly set Charles off was uh, that Odo betrothed his daughter to Uthman. Uh, a Umayyad governor who the Franks called Manusa. And this governor, Uthman, uh, governed the territory of Catalonia. Right? That's northeastern Spain. And this diplomatic marriage, semi-alliance, between uh, Aquitaine and uh, the Catalonian governor gave Charles the excuse he needed to attack. Now, in practice, uh, Charles did not do much more than a little bit of low-level raiding this year. Again, he's hesitant to do any damage to Frankish people, right? Certainly not anything that's going to turn the locals against him, so he's trying to pressure Odo without doing anything that would make himself persona non grata with the locals. But at the same time, 
there's a uh, diplomatic debacle going on on the other side of the border. Uh, and there the issue is that Uthman, right, this Umayyad governor who was engaged to Odo's daughter, uh, he decides to launch a rebellion against the Umayyad Caliphate in 731. And uh, the governor of Al-Andalus, that's the entire Iberian Peninsula, basically, this governor, uh, a man named Abdurrahman, puts down the rebellion. Uh, he does this very easily against Uthman, but then he turns on Uthman's ally, the Duke of Aquitaine, Odo. Odo's army marches out to meet the Umayyad army uh, near the city of Bordeaux in southern France, and they're defeated. Again, details are hard to come by. Uh, we do know that the armies fought along the bank of a river, and that the Franks fled, and Odo's army was basically dispersed. They could not regather. Uh, so he flees to Paris, and he begs for help from Charles uh, to drive the Umayyads back. And Charles agrees on one condition, and that is the condition that Odo swears fealty to him. Not to the Frankish king, right? Not to Theodoric, to Charles. And Odo agrees. Charles calls up all his troops, and he marches south with an army of about 30,000 men. Uh, again, this number is controversial, but what we do know is uh, almost all of them were infantry, and in October of 732, he decides to make battle against Abdurrahman uh, just outside the city of Tours. Uh, that's about 150 miles south of Paris. And not only is the size of the Frankish force controversial, uh, but so is the size of uh, Abdurrahman's force, right? It According to my source, Paul K. Davis, could be anywhere from 20,000 to 80,000 men. Uh, Victor Davis Hansen, another very respected military historian, uh, says that there's no way there could have been more than 30,000 of them, uh, just based on logistics, and that the forces of the Franks and the Umayyads were about equal. Uh, and of course, as usual, our sources from the time give us ridiculous numbers, right? We have Chroniclers saying that the Umayyads invaded with 200,000 men, well, that's impossible because they were living off the land. They would have starved. Uh, regardless, what we do know about the uh, Umayyad army is that they are mostly cavalry, uh, and they have outrun their supplies. So they are living off the land, which means they're dispersed, right? you got to think of... You know, let's let's go with uh, uh, Victor Davis Hansen's number and said 30,000 cavalry. Well, if you're feeding them in the field, that's a whole lot of horses, which means you need a lot of acreage just to feed the horses for your cavalry, right? So they're spread out. And Charles takes advantage of this, uh, this spread out Muslim army, and he forms his combined United Infantry Army into a square on a wooded hill just south of the city of Tours. And this square formation, and the fact that the tree is wooded, those two facts make it difficult for the Umayyads to proceed, right? Number one, if they're going to attack, they're charging uphill, 
And number two, even if they do, with this square formation in the woods, it's really hard to tell how many Franks they're dealing with, right? Are there just a few thousand men? Are there a hundred thousand? It's very hard to tell from any kind of distance. And Abdurman has been outmaneuvered. I don't mean this in the sense that Charles's army is somehow more maneuverable. Of course not. Abdurman's army is more maneuverable. They're cavalry. What I mean is that Charles has positioned himself on the high ground outside the city. So if Abdurman wants to sack the city of Tours, he has to defeat Charles. Even so, all of the Muslim conquests pretty much up to this point have been based on the effectiveness of their shock cavalry. Right where they have failed, like Constantinople, it has been because of other reasons. Right? The Muslim cavalry didn't lose at Constantinople. The Muslim navy lost. Right? How can you expect the cavalry to take the city without the navy supporting them and establishing a beachhead? Right? So if you're Abdurman, you can understand why you might still be fairly confident. And moreover, Charles's defensive position does give Abdurman one advantage. He has time. Right? He spends seven days facing off with Charles while gathering his forces. In other words, becoming as strong as he can. And on the seventh day, the Umayyads attack, charging uphill into the woods against Charles's heavy infantry. Uh, Charles's less experienced levies, right, conscripts, draftees, as you might call them, uh, they're in the center of the square. Uh, they seem to be throwing javelins, uh, providing some kind of support. But again, no contemporary counts of the battle exist. Um, one quote I did see was from Isidorus Pisenesis, a Portuguese bishop, uh, at this time living under Muslim rule, uh, and he wrote about the battle 20 years later. And he says, The men of the north stood motionless as a wall. They were like a belt of ice frozen together and not to be dissolved as they slew the Arab with the sword. The Austrasians, vast of limb and iron of hand, hewed on bravely in the thick of the fight. And when he says the Austrasians hewed on bravely in the thick, what he means is that this hard core of Austrasian troops that have been with Charles for years, they're the ones in the heat of the fighting. Now, at some point, some Umayyad troops do penetrate the Frankish formation, and they appear to threaten Charles himself. Uh, but he does not retreat or panic. He stands firm within the formation, and his men drive the Umayyads back. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, Abdurman's guard is surrounded, and uh, they die with him. But nonetheless, Abdurman dies. But where this occurs, it's in the thick of the fighting, so most of the Umayyads don't even realize their commander is dead, nor, by the way, do most of the Franks realize that Abdurman is dead. Uh, instead, the decisive point in the battle comes when Odo, right, this Duke of Aquitaine, leads his own men in a charge around the Umayyad flank. 
and his intent is to get around behind them and uh, sort of trap them, but it actually has a different effect, an unintended effect. Uh, when some of the Umayyads see this flanking force coming around, here's what one anonymous Muslim chronicler has to say. Quote, Many of the Muslims were fearful for the safety of the spoil which they had stored in their tents, and a false cry arose in their ranks that some of the enemy were plundering the camp, whereupon several squadrons of the Muslim horsemen rode off to protect their tents. And with their force divided, the main force is soon defeated, has to break and flee. And here's what Isidorus Pisenesis has to say about the aftermath. Quote, the Franks, with misgivings, lowered their blades, and beholding the numberless tents of the Arabs, prepared themselves for another battle the next day. Very early, when they issued from their retreat, the men of Europe saw the Arab tents ranged still in order, in the same place where they had set up their camp. Unaware that they were utterly empty, and fearful lest within the phalanxes of the Saracens, Saracens being a word that many people in this time used to refer to the Arabs, uh, fearful lest within the phalanxes of the Saracens were drawn up for combat, they sent out spies to ascertain the facts. These spies discovered that all the squadrons of the Ishmaelites had vanished. Ishmaelites, once again, being another uh, contemporary term for uh, Arabs or Muslims. In fact, during the night they had fled with the greatest silence, seeking with all speed their homeland. The Europeans, uncertain and fearful lest they were merely hidden in order to come back by ambushments, sent scouting parties everywhere, but to their great amazement found nothing. Then, without troubling to pursue the fugitives, they contented themselves with sharing the spoils and returned right gladly to their own country. And one of the fascinating things about this text, written again in 754, is it, it is the first Latin text to refer to people as Europeans. You can go back through a thousand years of Roman history, and not once in any surviving record will you see someone talk about European people. You might see European trade problems or European military affairs, but the people themselves were all Romans. And even from the collapse of the empire to this date, you see people referred to by their specific tribal names, right? Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Vandals, Alans, Huns. You don't see people referred to by the continent they're from. Europeans? What does that even mean? What we are seeing here is the birth in real time, or if you want to get technical, in historical time, of a different kind of identity. Of a European identity, and I dare say, conversely, of a Middle Eastern identity. 
this division of the Mediterranean world in such a fundamental way is something that I don't know we have seen since prehistory, since before the Romans. The Mediterranean has many times been politically divided. People have had different rulers, countries, they've lived under different laws, but, you know, they've been fundamentally a connected world. In here, in the early Middle Ages, you start to see this change. Of course, another question that historians ask about this time is, was Obdurman's attack just a massive punitive raid or an invention, right? If you look at the legends that surround this battle, written by later European chroniclers, there was a Muslim wave coming up from Hispania, and that wave struck a Frankish rock and broke. But there's another interpretation that says Abdurman never intended to conquer Aquitaine, right? If he did, why would he come with only cavalry? Why would he outrun his supply lines, uh, knowing that he would have to at least engage in some kind of siege, right? It seems more likely he was just trying to punish Aquitaine and put them down much the same way that Charles was dealing with the Saxons. Regardless of Abdurman's intentions which we will never know because he died in the battle. This marked the high point of Umayyad penetration into Western Europe. Uh, Muslim power from here on out dwindled in France. Some settlements did remain on the Mediterranean coast, but uh, even those within the next 20 years had been removed by the Franks. And the Pyrenees, for the time being at least, served as the geographic barrier between the Christian and Muslim worlds. The Pyrenees being that mountain range that stretches across the top of the Iberian Peninsula between France and Spain, even today, that's a national barrier, right? Well, that is quite the obstacle, both for the Muslims and for the Franks, and it ends up becoming the dividing line between their kingdoms. After the Battle of Tours, as this battle has come to be known, our young Charles earned a nickname that made him a legend. That nickname is Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer. And for the next five years, Charles Martel would spend his time solidifying and unifying the Frankish realm. Right in 734, there's a rebellion by the Frisian Duke. Right, these people again along the what we would call today the North Dutch coast. Uh, Martel puts down that rebellion, and this time he kills the Duke and he destroys all the pagan shrines in the region. These people are going to start causing trouble again and again over religion. He will destroy their religion. 
And speaking of religion, during this time there are still some constant ongoing low-level raids back and forth between the Franks and the Umayyads. But the Umayyads at this stage are starting to deal with their own internal rebellions. So any raiding that does happen is fairly low-level, right? The Franks and Charles Martel don't need to worry at this point that there's going to be some massive uh, Umayyad uh, invasion force showing up. In 737, the Frankish king Theodoric dies, right? That guy who was sort of a puppet of Charles's. And Charles Martel does not appoint a new king. He does not claim the kingship for himself, mind you. He just doesn't appoint a new king, and nobody else really objects or bothers to appoint or nominate a new king for themselves. And this gives uh, Charles another opening where he pushes a little further and he even gives himself a new title. And that title is Princeps et Dux Francorum, which means roughly First Citizen and Duke of the Franks. Now this title, Princeps, First Citizen, is historically significant because it goes back to the second Roman Emperor, uh, Augustus. And Augustus, being a savvy politician, never challenged Rome's republican ideals. Even while he was clearly the emperor, he simply referred to himself as the first citizen. And this is the type of propaganda Charles is now using to further expand his power. In 738, Charles invades the Saxons for a last time. This time, not only does he subdue them, he forces them to pay tribute to him, and he builds cathedrals in their land, and he appoints a bishop to Christianize the area of Saxony. This bishop is a little bit off of our beaten path, but he would become known as St. Boniface, the patron saint of Germany. He is credited with doing the bulk of the work of converting the Germanic barbarians of this area to good, honest, believing Christians who, of course, would never make war on their neighbors. We hope. And with the exception of a couple of minor rebellions, the last three years of Charles's reign are relatively peaceful. He dies at home in his bed in the year 741. And he is buried in the Basilica of Saint-Denis in Paris, where, if you recall from a couple episodes ago, the first king of the Franks, Clovis, is also buried. And upon his death, Charles follows the same practice of previous Merovingian kings, right? He divides the Frankish kingdom between his sons. Now, Charles has two sons. The elder son, Carloman, becomes mayor of the palace of Austrasia, and the younger son, named Pepin, becomes mayor of the palace of Neustria. Uh, now, there is a third illegitimate brother named Grifo, who demands part of that rule. Uh, this serves to actually unite Carloman and Pepin early on, because they come together to besiege Grifo and uh, put down his rebellion before that year is out. And... 
recognizing that the union of the Frankish kingdom is embodied in the person of the king, Carloman decides to appoint a new king, right? After all, he is Majordomo of Austrasia. Uh, Pepin is Majordomo of Neustria. It only makes sense if they serve a common king. Again, at least for the sake of symbolism, right? Symbolism can be a powerful thing. And Carloman appoints a Merovingian, right, a member of the dynasty named Childeric, to the throne in the year 743. And for the next few years, uh, both brothers continue to cooperate militarily. Things seem to be going well. Uh, in 747, Carloman, the older brother, right, goes to visit the Pope in Rome. And according to the official records, he decides to retire and to become a monk. Now, again, from any official record, this was voluntary, this is what he wanted, etc. But you can't help but speculate, and many historians speculate very freely, uh, that Pepin had in fact encouraged the Pope to keep Carloman there, uh, that Pepin was making a power grab. Regardless of whether there was any scheme or not, the result is the same. Uh, Pepin becomes the sole majordomo, the sole mayor of the palace for the entire Frankish kingdom. And at this point, the younger, younger brother, Grifo, once again escapes from prison. Pepin puts down the rebellion again, and this time he doesn't mess around. Right, Charles Martel may have been merciful, but Pepin is not. He has Grifo beheaded. And then, on top of it, he hunts down his older brother Carloman's son, Drogo, right, his nephew, and has him executed, too. He makes sure that the only people who will be eligible to inherit anything of the Frankish kingdom will be his own sons. So far, doesn't look like Pepin is such a great guy, but he found a way to rehabilitate his image, and he found it through the Pope. See, the Pope has been in trouble for some time now, and this is something that many historians gloss over about uh, Charles Martel, who's known as this great defender of Christianity. Well, Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but back in 739, he had left the Pope in the lurch. Uh, see, without protection from the weakening Byzantine Empire, the Pope's lands had been ravaged by Lombard raiders. This has been happening for some time, right? These Lombards, these people who rule northern Italy, have been encroaching on the Pope's lands, and as far back as 739, he had sent a letter... Uh, to Charles Martel, and he said, quote, We can now no longer endure the persecution of the Lombards, for they have taken from St. Peter all his possessions, even those which were given to him by you and your fathers. These Lombards hate and oppress us because we sought protection from you. For the same reason also the church of St. Peter is despoiled and desolated by them. But we have entrusted a more complete account of all our woes to your faithful subject, our present messenger, and he will relate them to you. 
You, O son, will receive favor from the same prince of apostles here and in the future life in the presence of God, according as you render speedy aid to his church and to us, that all peoples may recognize the faith and love and singleness of purpose which you display in defending St. Peter and his chosen people. For by doing this you will attain lasting fame on earth and eternal life in heaven. Now at the time... In 739, Charles Martel had not assisted the Pope. Things were complicated. He had dealings with the Lombards. But Pepin, right, in a later time, is a little bit freer, and he decides to ally with the Pope. And starting in 749, they begin corresponding. Uh, Pepin asks the Pope in a letter whether the kingship should be held by a figurehead or by the person with the real power. Right? What he's asking is, should the Frankish king really be this figurehead or should the major domo just take over? And Pope Zachary's pretty sharp. He understands that Pepin wants some kind of alliance and some kind of wink and a nod, uh, so he says that uh, power should be held by the person who actually has power in real life, not just a figurehead. So in 751, using this reasoning, Pope Zachary uh, has Childeric III, right, this king of the Franks, dethroned, and both he and his friends are forced into monastic life. Uh, this meant that they were tonsured, right? Their hair was cut. Incidentally, long hair was a symbol of royalty amongst the Franks, so this was a double insult. Not only were they being made monks, but they were being made less than royalty. And given how fast this happened, um, one must wonder whether Pepin had made any promises to Zachary in advance of this. Regardless, Pepin in the year 751 is acclaimed as king by all the Frankish nobles and this major domo, this mayor of the house, uh, becomes also the king of the Franks, uniting them again. Incidentally, historically, this also marks the end of a dynasty, right? So far, all of our kings have been descendants of Clovis, Right, members of the Merovingian dynasty. And here, beginning with Pepin, who is not related to Clovis, we have a new dynasty, the Carolingian dynasty, the dynasty of Charles, right? Referring to Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer. Or, if you prefer, to his grandson, Charles the Great, who we'll talk about in a minute. Regardless, Pepin does side with the Pope, he does make war on the King of the Lombards, and his peace terms simply require the Lombards to return the property that they had stolen from the church. Again, this is one reason people wonder, was there a deal made in advance with Pope Zachary? Pepin got his kingship, Zachary got his land back, right? Seems like a good deal. We will probably never know. We do know that Pepin spent the next several years incorporating a few smaller Germanic kingdoms into his realm, uh, and he also conquers 
the remaining Muslim territories on the Mediterranean coast, right? Remember, we said that the Umayyad Caliphate had outposts on the French shore of the Mediterranean. Well, those are gone now. And throughout the 760s, Pepin continues to make war. He uh, goes up against the Dukes of Aquitaine and Gascon. Now, Aquitaine, as I said, was located in southern France. Gascon is in a similar area. Just picture them there side by side. You've got the general right idea. Um, he conquers both of their capitals, the cities of Bordeaux and Toulouse. And this expands core Frankish territory and it reduces both Aquitaine and Gascon, which were major players in the region, to dependent dukedoms, right? They're subsidiary to the Franks in all but name. And in 768, Pepin dies. Can you guess where he's buried? That's right! The Basilica of Saint-Denis! Right where you will find Clovis and Charles Martel, you will find Pepin as well. Yet another reason I would love to visit that place. Upon Pepin's death, as per Frankish custom, his kingdom is split between his two sons. And because the Franks only seem to have like five names, they're names we've already seen before. The older son, uh, between 21 and 26 years old, uh, he's Charles, and the younger son is Carloman, age 17. So once again, we see a split Frankish kingdom, and at first the brothers seem to get along. And once again, in the year 770, as regular as clockwork, every time there's a change in leadership in France, it seems like Aquitaine revolts. Well, they revolt. And both brothers, Charles and Carloman, go to put down the rebellion, but Carloman wavers at the last minute. He wants to see who's going to win, so he withdraws and returns to Burgundy in cowardice. And Charles, the older brother, is left fighting alone against two rebel dukes, Hanold and Lupus, and uh, he decides to take them one at a time. So first he sets up a fort, outside uh, Hanold City, and Hanold flees uh, and seeks sanctuary with Lupus. With Hanold defeated, Charles then turns around, besieges Lupus, and negotiates. Uh, Lupus swears fealty to Charlemagne, and Hanold, getting the short end of the stick, gets put into a monastery, as seems to happen a lot in this story. At this time, Charles is king of the Franks. He is undisputed major domo of the Franks, and he is prepared to start expanding. So he solidifies his position by making an alliance with the Lombards, again, these people who control northern Italy. And he marries the daughter of the Lombard king. The Lombard king's name is Desiderius, and his daughter's name is Desiderata. But within a year, Charles seeks an annulment from the Pope. Now, the Pope had opposed this match to begin with and is happy to grant an annulment. Uh, and the reasons for Charles's 
flip-flop here don't seem entirely clear, right? Uh, this was, on the one hand, an excellent political match. It doesn't seem like Desiderata did anything to warrant uh, being suddenly and immediately divorced. But on the other hand, remember, uh, Charles was still dealing with these Germanic tribes around Saxony, and he needed their support as well. And uh, as soon as he obtains his annulment from Desiderata, this Lombard princess, he marries a 13-year-old Germanic princess named Hildegard. Now, I say she's 13, this sounds horrifying to modern people. Keep in mind, these are medieval times. In medieval times, once someone was post-pubescent, they were allowed to get married. Them was the rules. And within those rules, he did marry Hildegard. And it seems, again, probably this was a political marriage to begin with, right? Number one, he makes an enemy of the Lombards by divorcing the Lombard princess he just married, and then he marries this young girl. Well, why? Probably because her father owned a huge number of estates along the Rhine, right? The river that separates uh, France from Germany. But despite the political nature of the marriage, it does seem that these people, uh, Hildegard and uh, Charles, were genuinely in love. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Right, again, keeping in mind that Charles himself is a relatively young man. Uh, number one, over the next 12 years, Hildegard bore Charles nine children, including a set of twins. Now, in modern times, that might be enough, right? You, you see a couple have nine kids in 12 years. You, you figure things are at least right with their relationship. Uh, but not only that, Hildegard accompanied Charles on all his military campaigns. She was by his side, uh, which again would have been unusual in this era when women tended to take a back seat. Uh, and it indicates that there was a genuine connection between the two. On the other hand, Charles also had two concubines during this marriage because early Christianity is weird. Uh, so we are left to question. By the standards of the time, one must think that these two people had some kind of connection. Then again, that's just my opinion. Regardless, Charles is still left with the problem of Desiderius, right? This Lombard king whose daughter has just been jilted by him. So Desiderius begins plotting with Carloman, the younger brother, to make war on Charles. And over the next couple of years, Charles and Carloman go about securing their own realms, right? There is a simmering level of suspicion between the two, but it never boils over. And in 771, Carloman suddenly dies of a severe nosebleed at the age of 20. This is another one of those cases where we can say his death was certainly convenient, for Charles anyway, but there's no historical evidence of foul play, right? We can say 
that this certainly benefited Charles, but we can't actually prove he had anything to do with it. And and the probability is, given how many things happened to people at a young age in this time period, that it probably didn't, right? Carloman's death was probably natural. Regardless, as of 771, Charles is now the sole king of the Franks, and by now, yes, he's calling himself king, not just majordomo. And if you haven't figured it out by now, the particular Charles I'm talking about isn't just any old Charles. This is Charles with a title. This is Charles the Great. In Latin, he's known as Carolus Magnus. In German, he's known as Karl der Grosse. And in French and modern English, he is referred to as Charlemagne. Now, an interesting thing about Charlemagne is that we actually know more about his character in his later years than we do about most historical figures of this time. And this is because he had a personal chronicler. A scholar named Einhardt uh, was his personal friend and spent a lot of time with him and wrote the story of his life. That is an unusual amount of detail for this era. And even so, we don't know a lot of details about Charlemagne, right? We don't know when he was born. It may have been as early as 742. It may have been as late as 747. We're not sure. Here we have this hugely consequential man. We don't even know when he was born. In the year 772... There is yet another new pope, and this pope, Adrian I, demands that the Lombards return some land. Now, this land had been in dispute for more than 20 years. Right, 20 years prior, the Lombards had conquered the remaining Byzantine territory in northern Italy. Right, the Byzantines were now out of Italy. Basically, they, they had some land around Naples, they controlled Calabria, which is the toe of the Italian boot, but they were basically out. And all of this former Byzantine land was being held by the Lombards. And yet some of it technically belonged to the Pope. And when Pope Adrian's predecessor, Stephen, had supported Desiderius in his original claim for the throne, there had been conditions, and those conditions were that Desiderius would turn over some of those cities back to papal control. However, since Adrian had become pope, not only had Desiderius failed to turn over those cities, but he was actually encroaching on papal territory. He invaded the Pentapolis, which is a set of five cities along the Adriatic coast, uh, which were former Byzantine territory, right, major trading uh, areas there. And he even has a separate army positioned just a day's march north of Rome. And it is this point that Pope Adrian appeals to Charlemagne for help. Right? He reminds him of how Pepin, Charlemagne's father, had supported Pope Zachary against the Lombards. And the messenger says, They would attack us by land and water conquer the city of Rome, and lead us into captivity. 
Therefore, we implore you by the living God and the Prince of the Apostles to hasten to our aid immediately, lest we be destroyed. Charlemagne tries diplomacy first. He sends an envoy demanding that Desiderius return the papal land. Desiderius refuses. So Charlemagne gathers an army, and much like Hannibal did centuries before, he invaded Italy through the Alps during the spring thaw. Amongst other people, uh, only pointing this out because it's interesting to me, but he's accompanied by his uncle Bernard, who is not only a son of Charles Martel, but an abbot. This is a real-life Christian warrior monk riding to war. Charlemagne besieges Desiderius in his capital of Pavia, which is a small city in northern Italy just south of Milan. And once again, we have to deal with army size because we really don't know. Estimates of Charlemagne's force range from 10,000 to 100,000. 10,000, probably not enough to do what he achieved with it. 100,000, probably more than he could have supported in the field. All right, again, we're probably looking at a force of about twenty to 30,000 men, and by now it's, it's a mixture of cavalry and infantry, right? The Franks are not limited to Charles Martel's heavy infantry. They also have cavalry. They can pursue enemies after engagements, uh, flank them, do better scouting, uh, things like that. Charlemagne has significantly improved the military. Um, with all of that being said, one must wonder whether there was a larger force, and the reason for that is a historian named Notker the Stammerer. Now, Notker's history of Charlemagne was written a little bit later than Einhard's. It was written in the 900s, and it was written for Charlemagne's great-grandson named Charles the Fat, because we ran out of ways to distinguish these Charleses. Anyway, uh, Notker the Stammerer's account is generally considered mythological, right? That doesn't mean there aren't elements of truth, but while Einhard likes to stick to the facts, Notker likes to embellish. Even so, here's what he says about Charlemagne's invading force into Lombardy. And what he is recounting here, supposedly, are the words of Otkar. Sounds kind of like Oscar, because it is. And Otkar is a Frankish trader who was with Desiderius in Pavia as Charlemagne's army approached. And here is... Notker the Stammerer's version of what Otker had to say. Quote, As soon as the baggage trains came into sight, moving even more quickly than those of Darius or Julius Caesar, Desiderius said to Otker, Is Charles in the midst of that vast array? Not yet, not yet, answered Otker. When he perceived the army itself, Collected together from all the nations of Charlemagne's vast empire, Desiderius said sharply to Otker, 
Now Charles is advancing proudly in the midst of his troops. Not yet, not yet, answered Otker. Desiderius then flew into a panic and said, If even more soldiers come into battle with him, what can we possibly do? When he comes, said Otker, you will see what he is like. I don't know what will happen to us. As they spoke together, the sovereign's escort appeared, tireless as ever. When he saw them, Desiderius was stupefied. This time is it really Charles, said he? Not yet, not yet, said Otker once more. After this, the bishops came into sight, and the abbots and the clergy of Charlemagne's chapel with their attendants. When he saw them, Desiderius longed for death and began to hate the light of day. With a sob in his voice, he stammered, Let us go down and hide ourselves in the earth, in the face of the fury of an enemy so terrible. Otker, too, was terrified. For in happier days, he had been in close contact with the strategy and the military equipment of the peerless Charlemagne, and he knew all about them. When you see the fields bristle as with ears of corn, he said, when you see the Po and the Ticino break over the walls of your city in great waves, those are nature Italian rivers, which gleam black with the glint of iron, then indeed you can be sure that Charlemagne is at hand. He had not yet finished his words when from the west a mighty gale, and with it the wind of the true north began to blow up like some great pall of cloud, which turned the bright daylight into frightful gloom. As the emperor rode on and ever on, from the gleam of his weapons dawned as it were another day, more dark than any night for the beleaguered force. Then came in sight that man of iron, Charlemagne, topped with his iron helm, his fists in iron gloves, his iron chest and his platonic shoulders clad in an iron cuirass. An iron spear raised high against the sky he gripped in his left hand, while in his right he held his still unconquered sword. His shield was all of iron. His horse gleamed, iron-colored, and its very metal was as if of iron. All those who rode before him, those who kept him company on either flank, those who followed after wore the same armor, and their gear was as close a copy of his own as it is possible to imagine. And here I must step aside for a second and point out, number one, that it's unlikely that Charlemagne's guard all had matching armor, and number two, if they did, it would have been extremely expensive and really impressive in this time in Western Europe, which might be a reason that Notker the Stammerer is mentioning this. Anyway, he goes on. Iron filled the fields and the open spaces. The rays of the sun were thrown back by this battle line of iron. When therefore Otker, who had foreseen the truth, with one swift glance observed all this which I, a toothless man with stammering speech, have tried to describe, not as I ought, but slowly and with labyrinthine phrase, he said to Desiderius, That is Charlemagne, whom you have sought so long. And as he spoke, he fell half-conscious to the ground. Now, 
if you take that passage at face value, it does seem like Charlemagne had quite the force. Was it actually enough to make a senior military man faint? I doubt it, but even if what Notker the Stammerer is conveying to us is just an impression of the truth, embellished for posterity, we're still looking at quite the impressive force. And as it turns out, it was indeed impressive enough for Charlemagne to leave most of his force at Pavia, but to lead a smaller contingent away to defeat another Lombard army at Verona, which is in northeastern Italy. Right, a little bit to the right across the map from Pavia, but not too far. Uh, and he defeats that force. And at that point, there are no other Lombard attempts to relieve Desiderius. It seems like he's basically alone there, besieged in Pavia, uh, to the extent that Charlemagne can visit the Pope for Easter and uh, celebrate with him. And the siege of Pavia lasts for ten months. But nothing really climactic happens. I mean, nobody comes to help them. And um, eventually, plague sets in and Desiderius surrenders. Charlemagne is merciful. He sends Desiderius to a monastery in the north of France. Charlemagne seems to be taking a little bit of mercy from his grandfather Charles Martel. And he also takes the ambition of his father Pepin the Short, because while he is merciful to Desiderius, he does insist to the other Lombard nobles on being crowned as king of the Lombards. And so in 774, Charlemagne becomes king not just of the Franks, but also of the Lombards. He is effectively king of France and Italy. And this Lombard crown he is crowned with has an interesting history. Uh, you see, it's one of the oldest crowns in Europe, and it is called the Iron Crown. Because supposedly, there is a nail from the True Cross in it. Now, you can go see this crown today. It is still on display in a uh, cathedral in northern Italy. And you can see that there is indeed a nail in it. Now, is that nail from the cross upon which Jesus Christ was crucified? Or is it just sort of some nail uh, that a Lombard king installed in the crown to enhance his authority? Uh, probably the latter. But even without a nail from the true cross, the iron crown is still hugely historical. Thanks to Charlemagne's precedent, it was mused by many kings of Italy, many Holy Roman emperors, uh, as late as the 1800s. This is a major historical artifact, and it started with Charlemagne. And perhaps not surprisingly, as a king of the Franks, given how these things have gone so far, Charlemagne spends the next 25 years at near-constant war. Fortunately for him, he is generally on the winning side 
most importantly, uh, if you read Einhard's history, uh, most importantly is his war against the Saxons. And modern historians will break this up into a series of shorter wars and campaigns over a period of time, but to hear Einhard tell it, the war was basically a 30-year war. It basically extended from 774 to 804, and that's quite a war. Now, you take modern historians into account, you figure there are breaks in the action, it makes a little bit more sense, but still, that's a long time for a major conflict to be going. In addition, Charlemagne has to deal with some rebellions. And he has to deal with this again and again in Saxony. Remember those Saxon people, those barbarians, where he eventually took over their land and set up cathedrals and gave them a bishop, St. Boniface, to try and force convert them to Christianity? Well, that only kind of worked. And in 782, Charlemagne lost his patience. Some Saxon rebels had not only launched a rebellion, but had killed a number of Frankish nobles in their territory. So Charlemagne personally led the response, and when he defeated them, he did not just let the leaders go, as was his normal, merciful nature. He massacred 4,500 leading Saxons. And this is not some slander that's thrown against him. This is a historical record from Einhard, his friend. Here's what Einhard has to say. When the king heard of this disaster, meaning the uh, Saxon uprising and the slaying of several Frankish nobles, he decided not to delay, but made haste to gather an army and marched into Saxony. There he called to his presence the chiefs of the Saxons, and inquired who had induced the people to rebel. They all declared that Wittekund was the author of the treason, but said that they could not produce him because after the deed was done he had fled to the Northmen, meaning the Norse, meaning the Danish. But because the others who had carried out his will and committed the crime were there, they delivered up to the king the number of 4,500. And by the king's command, they were all beheaded in one day upon the river Aller in the place called Verdun, modern-day Verdun. When he had wreaked vengeance after this fashion, the king withdrew. Now, modern people might understandably consider this treatment excessively harsh, but consider the fact that after 782, the Saxons did not rebel again. And think of all the people, not just Saxon leaders who were executed here, but men, women, and children on both sides who would have died in those uprisings. Maybe beheading those 4,500 men and obtaining peace is ultimately more merciful. Through this period, Charlemagne conquers as far as the southern end of Denmark. This is, by the way, where the Danes first appear in history, the Vikings. 
right? Well, literate people had not encountered them before. This doesn't mean that there weren't Vikings before 782. It means that before 782, nobody with writing, nobody who recorded history had ever met Vikings. Well, now they had, and now we have them to add to our historical toolkit of interesting peoples. Charlemagne does not only limit his attention to the north. He also turns some attention south, right? Remember this Muslim uh, caliphate, the Umayyad caliphate, now in civil war, but still there, is uh, just on the other side of the Pyrenees. And Charlemagne leads a handful of successful raids across the Pyrenees into Al-Andalus, right? The Umayyad territory. And ultimately, while Charlemagne would not conquer any of Al-Andalus, he would conquer most of modern-day Germany, in addition to his prior holdings, which were most of modern-day France and northern Italy. He has an empire. Yet, even after all of this, Charlemagne has some trouble to deal with. See, in the year 799, there is a new pope named Pope Leo. Pope Leo, unlike the previous Pope Adrian, was not a member of the Roman nobility. He was a common man from northern Italy who had become a priest and just sort of worked his way up, which was great for the common people, but for many relatives of the former Pope Adrian's, it was a slap in the face. Right? These were noble people, and uh, in the spirit of the times, they resented the fact that their noble relative's position was given away to a mere commoner, even though that position was a spiritual position and not a worldly position. Regardless, the relatives of Adrian managed to work up a bit of resentment. And in the year 799, Pope Leo is violently assaulted in the streets of Rome. Uh, some supporters of Adrian's family attack him. Apparently, they try to blind him and tear out his tongue, and the only reason he is saved, uh, much less survives, uh, is because a couple of Charlemagne's envoys, some pseudo-military messengers were nearby, and they rescued him. And uh, these envoys of Charlemagne's, they end up helping Pope Leo to flee Italy and go to France and seek Charlemagne's aid. Charlemagne returns to Rome with Leo in November of the year 800 and manages to resolve matters without the use of any military force. Uh, he calls a synod, a meeting of the senior bishops of the church, and in front of the synod he asks Leo to swear an oath that he is innocent of these trumped-up charges that uh, Adrian's relatives have levied against him. He swears he is not guilty of adultery, he is not guilty of perjury, any of these other charges, and the Synod agrees to let Leo continue serving as Pope. 
However, this has weakened Leo's position, right? Remember, he's the Pope. He's supposed to be the head of the church, and here he is relying on the good graces of the Frankish king to maintain his position. So Leo comes up with an ingenious plan, right? He is in no position to smack Charlemagne down. But if Charlemagne is going to be the most powerful man in Europe, why not make Charlemagne a little bit beholden to Leo? So one day, Christmas Day of the year 800, according to tradition, Pope Leo surprises Charlemagne and crowns him not just as a king, but as an emperor. And if one believes the stories, Leo does this by sneaking up on Charlemagne while he is privately at prayer on Christmas morning. This is what, again, Notker the Stammerer has to say. Quote, As Charles stayed in Rome for a few days, the bishop of the Apostolic See called together all who would come from the neighboring districts. And then, in their presence and in the presence of the knights of the unconquered Charles, he declared him to be emperor and defender of the Roman Church. And therein lies the rub, right? There's really two things going on here. Number one, Leo is sort of taking control of the situation, right? If the Pope crowns the Emperor, then the Emperor's power comes from the Pope, right? Comes from God in these times. On the other hand, if the Emperor is purely a secular authority, the Pope gains no power thereby. So it makes sense that Leo really, really wanted to crown Charlemagne. And the other half of this equation, of course, is that in addition to being declared emperor, Charlemagne is declared defender of the church, right? So sure, he gets acclaimed with all kinds of power, but he better come to help the Pope when the Pope needs aid, which is really good for Leo. And I should stress here how controversial it is to this day how any of these things really happen, right? According to the official legend, Charlemagne is going to pray on Christmas morning. He's praying in the chapel by himself, this pious leader, and the Pope kind of comes in with all these nobles and surprises him by crowning him emperor. Well, good move, Pope Leo, but most modern historians doubt that this myth is entirely accurate. And... I won't go into all the nitty-gritty as of why, because we could spend another half hour talking just about that. But the number one reason is that the artists, the contemporary accounts, even the historians who swear on their lives that Charlemagne was surprised by this coronation, all of them have Pope Leo coming into the chamber and taking a giant gold crown from the altar and placing it on Charlemagne's head. Well, from what we've seen, Charlemagne is not exactly an idiot. 
And if he walks into that chapel and he sees a giant gold crown sitting on the altar, he's probably going to get a little bit suspicious, right? So, again, many things about this story are uncertain. Maybe it was planned, maybe it wasn't. But from what we can surmise, the people of the time believed that Charlemagne was not expecting to be crowned, right? That Pope Leo did this spontaneously, and maybe purposefully, but he certainly did it without any previous planning. And any critical reading of the history indicates that there is probably some previous planning going on. Regardless of whether there was previous planning or not, Charlemagne does take to his role with great gusto. Unfortunately for Charlemagne, he doesn't necessarily have the means to do it. This doesn't mean that he doesn't have money or resources or support. By this point, he does. The problem is... It's been over 200 years since Justinian last reunified the empire, and in this time there have been some changes. Right? Remember a couple episodes ago, we talked about that old Roman bureaucracy lingering along even after the collapse of the empire? Well, by now it's been 200 more years. That bureaucracy is gone. So it's hard to administer this new empire. Right, and that's leaving aside the fact that many areas that were part of Charlemagne's realm had never been part of the Roman Empire to begin with, right? I mean, in the bulk of France, in northern Italy, at least you have these run-down old Roman roads. They might be in need of repair, but at least there are roads, right? You might have these bureaucratic posts that have either been replaced or faded away over time, but there's some cultural memory, and in the German parts of Charlemagne's realm, you don't even have that, right? You're trying to build or rebuild the Roman Empire from scratch. Charlemagne does his best, right? I mean, for one thing, he imitates the Romans by standardizing money. Right, He issues silver coins called denarii, which is what the Roman silver coins were called, and he even has his face imprinted on them. Uh, inscriptions underneath include things like Carolus Augustus Rex, right. Charles Augustus King, Charles Emperor King, right? However exactly you want to translate that, He's definitely bringing some Roman panache to the public trappings of his empire. Another thing he does is he orders that the Christian creeds, right, and by creeds I mean that literally right now, the statements of belief of Christianity, uh, he orders that these should be translated into the vernacular, right, the various... Germanic and Frankish languages in his realm, well, he wants all his people to be able to read and understand the Christian statements of faith. And during all this time, too, he's still maintaining somewhat of a military focus. 
Uh, there are Danes, right? Future Vikings uh, raiding the northern coasts of his realm. And there are also Umayyads, uh, Muslims, raiding the southern coasts of his realm. And to defend against this, he orders fleets built to defend the coasts. Now, these fleets were effective for what they were. Some historians speculate that uh, Charlemagne may even have been planning invasions of either the Muslim lands or the Viking lands or both. Uh, regardless, he died before he could achieve any of that, so we can't know for sure. And during his reign, during a time we call the Dark Ages, we usually think of lack of culture. But Charlemagne was intensely interested in learning and culture. Right, here is what Einhardt has to say on that matter. Quote, In speech he was fluent and ready, and could express with the greatest clearness whatever he wished. He was not merely content with his native tongue, but took the trouble to learn foreign languages. He learnt Latin so well that he could speak it as well as his native tongue, but he could understand Greek better than he could speak it. His fluency of speech was so great that he even seemed sometimes a little garrulous, a little overly talkative, right? This Charlemagne is so fluent. Einhard continues, He paid the greatest attention to the liberal arts and showed the greatest respect and bestowed high honors upon those who taught them. For his lessons in grammar, he listened to the instruction of Deacon Peter of Pisa, an old man, but for all other subjects, Albinus, called Alcuin, also a deacon, was his teacher, a man from Britain, of the Saxon race, and the most learned man of his time. Charles spent much time and labor in learning rhetoric and dialectic, and especially astronomy, from Alcuin. He learnt, too, the art of reckoning, and with close application scrutinized most carefully the course of the stars. He also tried to learn to write, and for this purpose used to carry with him and keep under the pillow of his couch tablets and writing sheets, that he might in his spare moments accustom himself to the formation of letters. But he made little advance in this strange task, which was begun too late in life. In other words, Charlemagne was a Renaissance man. Before the Renaissance. And unfortunately for all of us who would love to have read what he had to say himself, he died too young to actually master the art of writing. Beyond education and the arts, Charlemagne also took an interest in religion. Right? Throughout his reign, he would install and remove priests and bishops pretty much at will. As a matter of fact, he even calls his own church council in Aiken. And at this church council, they pronounce a doctrine called the Filioque. Now, I really don't want to dig too far into this because on the one hand... Again, as we talked about last episode, this is really obscure theological stuff. On the other hand, this pronouncement, in large part, led to the split between the Orthodox and Catholic churches that we see today. 
And what the proclamation says, essentially, is that, right, you have this Christian doctrine of the Trinity, three parts of the same God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And traditionally, prior to this time, it was said that God the Father begat God the Son, right? That's pretty much the nature of a father and a son. And that the Father's love for the Son manifested as the Holy Spirit. And at this church council, Charlemagne, well, to be fair, under his leadership, Charlemagne's bishops and theologians promulgate the idea that the Holy Spirit did not come directly from the Father, but came from the mutual love, the perfect divine love between the Father and the Son. Now, Okay, Dan, why are you talking about obscure matters of theology? Well, over the next few hundred years, surprisingly, this little difference in Christianity would become hugely contentious. So it's important to point out that it started right here with Charlemagne, and that to begin with, this doctrine of the filioque, the doctrine that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son, this idea actually did not even gain official traction with the Pope at the time. Right? Leo declined to take a position. Nonetheless, the growth of that belief in the West and the fact that subsequent Popes would endorse it was a huge part of the split between the Catholic and Orthodox churches we see today. And if that just seems like a religious matter, well, just wait till we get into the Crusades and see how things would have really been different if it hadn't been for that split. Regardless of matters religious or secular, in the year 813, Charlemagne felt the end of his life approaching. And so he calls his son Louis, later known as Louis the Pious, to Paris. And they meet. Now, it's important to note here that people of the time would probably have called Louis Clovis. The same as that first founding Frankish king. But pronunciation changes, consonants get dropped, and we can see how Clovis becomes Clovy, becomes Louis, becomes Louis, becomes our bastardized American Louis. But nonetheless, you can understand how the French managed to have 16 kings in their dynasty, all named Louis, because they were all named after Clovis. And sort of named after this king, Louis the Pious. And Charlemagne's instincts in declaring Louis his heir prove correct, because just a few months later, in January of 814, he falls ill with pleurisy. That means lung inflammation, right? Could have been cancer, who knows? His lungs were inflamed. He couldn't breathe. He knew he was dying. And... 
he makes his last confession. And on January 28th, a week after he first fell ill, Charlemagne receives communion early in the morning and then dies at 9 a.m., according to Einhard. He is somewhere between the ages of 66 and 71. Again, we're not sure because of dreadful record-keeping in his younger years. And he is buried the same day of his death in the Cathedral of Aachen, where he remains to this day. And Charlemagne's son, Louis, Louis the Pious, does a respectable job of maintaining the Frankish realm. Now, this is with the exception of Lombardy, right, northern Italy. That territory goes to Charlemagne's illegitimate son, Bernard. But that doesn't last for long. A few years later, in 818, Bernard rebels. And when he is caught, Louis orders his eyes put out, which kills him. This means that Lombardy is reincorporated into the greater Frankish realm. For the next 22 years, Louis doesn't do much. He reigns until his death in 840 without either expanding the Frankish Empire or shrinking it. But upon his death, he follows the old Frankish custom and divides the kingdom amongst his three sons. This once again divides the Carolingian Empire for some period of time. But nonetheless, these three sons do make some impact of their own. See, their territories correspond roughly to modern-day France, Germany, and Italy. At least, northern Italy, at least. But uh, those lines that were drawn upon Charlemagne's death continue to have meaning. As far as the imperial crown goes, one of Charlemagne's sons, Lothair, tries to keep it. But soon there's a civil war, and over the course of the next few generations, the imperial crown bounces back and forth through several family members until, essentially, the emperor of the empire, the Carolingian Empire, is simply the ruler of Italy. It's a symbolic title at least for a few hundred years. Nonetheless, uh, Charlemagne's legacy, and indeed the legacy of the Carolingian dynasty, right, the dynasty he founded, uh, that legacy will live on. Amongst his descendants are the Plantagenet dynasty of England, right, Richard the Lionheart. There are also the... Habsburg dynasty. Perhaps you've heard of them. Right? The people who dominated Catholic Europe and the Holy Roman Empire for centuries, well, they all descended from Charlemagne. Oh, and the Capet dynasty? The French kings who would rule until the beheading of Louis XVI? Yeah, they were also descended from Charlemagne. And when you combine those three houses and 
look at intermarriage, pretty much every established European royal house can be traced to Charlemagne. This includes even noble people today, right? People in the House of Lords in England who can trace their birth back to Charlemagne. But it wasn't just a bunch of noble blood that was born from this man. It was also an idea, an idea of European identity. Now, Charlemagne himself may not have promulgated this, but it is evident in the sources, right? We have Isidorus Pacenesis writing for the first time in history about Europeans. And although Charlemagne's empire would die away in the next few generations after his death, the idea would live on. And, as we'll see, it became the Holy Roman Empire, right? an institution founded over 200 years later, but based around a European identity. Right? And what does that mean when this idea of Rome, right? Rome, this Mediterranean culture, when this idea becomes limited to a European culture? and a Christian culture. Well, that changes the idea of what it means to be Roman, doesn't it? But more importantly, it changes what people of the time aspire to. And that idea of the Holy Roman Empire, however correct or incorrect it may be historically, it lived on until World War One. That's a hundred years ago, give or take. And that's why it's relevant. Just a reminder, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always reach the show at at Dan Toller Podcast on Twitter. That's D-A-N-T-O-L-E-R Podcast on Twitter. And you can also find me at Dan Toller, that's T-O-L-E-R, on Facebook. In addition to that, if you want to send an email to the show, whether to give some input or request a different topic... Go ahead and shoot me a line at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. If you just stumbled across this episode and you'd like to find more episodes, they're available on just about every podcast service. You can find Relevant History on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Podbean, and several others. Just search for Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T, History. And if you happen to prefer YouTube, the show is on there well. Just don't expect any fancy videos. Finally, if you'd like to keep up with my blog, which may or may not ever be updated, 
you can find the show at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks.